So Micah and chapter 1, <clears throat> we are continuing to look at uh, the series entitled Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. And uh, we have said that these are 12 books, very small books that I found after the book of Daniel. They are the kind of books that prove quite a bit of a challenge to find when you are asked to turn to them. So if you are still looking for Micah, I will not throw a stone at you. But they are divided quite neatly into the first bunch that was written prior to Israel going into uh, Assyrian and um, Babylonian captivity. We have looked at those already. But then you also have another set that was written during the years of captivity, and those are the ones we are currently going through. And then finally, you have the ones that were written when the people of Israel were brought back from captivity, but then they were a sad lot because when they came back into what was the promised land and found it in a desperate state, they were grieved and they saw that the promises of God as were made by the prophets were not quite realized at the time that they were living. So that, those are the the minor prophets, and really part of our challenge in studying them is to ask ourselves the question, how do we apply what was being spoken to a people so long ago in, in a very distinct period of history, being warned of captivity, being in captivity, coming out of captivity, how do we apply that to ourselves as New Testament believers. So what we've done is basically we've been flying through the books. Uh, sometimes it's been a chapter, sometimes it's been a chapter and a half, maybe even two chapters, depending on what is being addressed there. So we've not been studying the details. We have been looking at... Uh, what we would call today overviews. The last time, we were wrapping up Jonah, and we saw how distinct Jonah was from the other uh, minor prophets, that Jonah was essentially a narrative, whereas the other minor prophets were largely in poetic form. In fact, as we, you, you can peep at Malachi, on the pages of your Bible, you can already see that we are back into poetry. But also Jonah was written in, in the third person. It's somebody talking to us about Jonah. Whereas most of the prophetic writings, it is the prophet himself who is speaking directly. However, we saw in Jonah the, the graciousness of God, the, the unbelievable, amazing splendor of grace that we have in God. And it's a double play. It is mercy towards Assyria and Nineveh, and at the same time, it is mercy towards his own disobedient servant. His mercy towards Jonah himself. We've, in, in our last study, for instance, we saw from Jonah our own petty views and the way in which we put ourselves into situations and become very frustrated with God as though life should revolve around us. We saw that with Jonah. And yet at the same time, we saw God's amazing pity 
as he challenged Jonah concerning his own mercy towards these many people, including their animals, their domestic animals, that did not know they are left from their right. Which is the way the book ended. Verse 11 of Jonah chapter 4. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's where it ended. Jonah being challenged. Today, we begin to study the book of Micah. And thankfully, in verse 1, we are told three things about Micah himself. It is where he was, when he lived, and indeed, what he saw. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Yotam or Jotam, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. A few words of introduction that are tied up with that verse, and then we will look at the two lessons that we see from the first chapter. And it is simply God's warning and our appropriate response. God's warning and our appropriate response. But first of all, Micah. So when Micah says that he prophesied or lived in the days of Jotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, we immediately have an idea of the period in which he lived. Because these were real kings, and they were real kings in Judah, and they followed one after the other. So, if you were to talk in terms of years, you're talking of roughly 50 years in which he ministered, and that is between 750 B.C. and 700. Between 750 B.C. and 700. These kings were of different moral standings. They were kings only in Judah, as we have read here, not in Israel. At this time, the, the nation of Israel was divided into two. The northern kingdom, which was properly called Israel, and the southern kingdom that was called Judah, and that's where uh, Micah was ministering, in the southern part. Um, Jotam was a good king. And those of you taking notes, Second uh, Kings 15, verse 32 to verse 34, you can just take note of it and go and read about it afterwards. So that's Jotam. Ahaz was an evil king. And you can read about him in Second Kings as well, but this time the first four verses of chapter 16. So 2 Kings 16, verse 1 to verse 4. And then lastly, you have Hezekiah, who was also a good king. And he is found in 2 Kings 18, 1 to verse 7. Of course, these kings will be found elsewhere, but at least if you read those accounts, you will learn a little bit about the kind of quality of leadership that they were giving. It's worth mentioning that um, while Micah was ministering to the middle king, or rather under the middle king in Judah, Assyria finally won the battle against 
the other 12 tribes of Israel and took them into captivity. So by 722, the 10 tribes of Israel, God finally said, enough is enough, brought the Assyrians and took them into captivity. So the warnings that Micah is giving, and we shall see in a few minutes in chapter 1, are the final warnings. His predecessors have also done their own bit of warning. In fact, Hosea lived in the days of uh, Micah. Um, Amos lived in the days of Micah. Isaiah lived in the days of Micah. And each one of these warned the nation of Israel collectively, but especially the northern kingdom, Israel, over and over and over again. Guys, the way you are living, judgment is coming. They didn't listen. And then halfway through Micah's life and ministry, they were taken into captivity. So when Micah is speaking here, let's bear that in mind, that the judgment fell and he continued warning Judah, which is where he was, the remaining two tribes of Israel in the south. Micah itself can be divided into three sections. And if you've got your Bible with you and with, with subheadings, I hope we will notice that. So let me quickly take you through that as well. So the first three chapters primarily deal with Micah sending warnings, warnings to Israel and I'll just read the subheadings. So at the beginning, I have the coming destruction, at least in the ESV. At the beginning, the coming destruction, chapter 2, is his message to the, especially those who were wealthy and politically powerful because they were oppressing the poor. So that's largely what we have in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he is primarily denouncing the leaders and the false prophets. Okay, so you notice that there is a lot of uh, warnings of judgment because sin was rampant. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, we largely have messages of hope, messages where we see God's love reaching out to his people who deserve discipline. So you notice there, uh, chapter 4, speaking about the mountain of the Lord. <clears throat> and uh, from verse 6 downwards, the Lord shall rescue Zion. Chapter 5, the ruler to be born in Bethlehem, and we know who that is. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 7 downwards, a remnant shall be delivered. So you see that it's, it's largely a message of hope and hope. So it's not just coming to threaten judgment, but also to say where there is repentance, look at what God plans for you. What is interesting is in chapter 6 and chapter 7, because what God does is he plays out a kind of courtroom situation where he summons the people of Israel and challenges them, saying, look at the way I have treated you, the way I have lived with you, but look at the way you have responded towards me. And that's what we find there. The indictment from the Lord, beginning of chapter 1, what the Lord requires in uh, verse 6, and then finally the destruction that he intends to bring. But notice again, even in that courtroom situation, there is um, the promise of God in chapter 7 bringing salvation to his people. And that's the note on which he again ends. So I'm bringing judgment, but there is hope 
again coming in the future. So that's Micah for you, summarized in um, seven chapters. In this first chapter, what we essentially learn is how we should respond to the warnings that are in the Bible. So the title is God's Warning Calls for Personal Weeping. How we should respond to the warnings that are there in the Bible. And of course, it's not simply us collectively responding, but as individuals, as we are studying God's Word, how should we be responding? So, from verse 2 down to verse 7, we have God's warnings. And I will quickly take you through four major points in God's warnings. First of all, it is the Lord summoning the people of Israel, or in this case, the people of Judah, summoning them. And here is what we read, verse 2 and verse 3. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The language there obviously being of judgment. He is going to come himself and he is going to judge you. So there is a summons that the Lord is bringing out that we all might come out of our hiding places and listen to him. Secondly, it is the devastating effect of his coming. The devastating effect of his coming in verse 4. And the mountains, that is these high places, obviously also bearing in mind the places of political power. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So this is not going to be nice when the Lord finally comes. And he's deliberately using picture language which the people of Israel themselves would have been able to identify with. Because a mountain melting, a valley being spilt open, walks that melts in front of the fire, and water that's poured down over a very steep cliff like the Victoria Falls, all of these speak of overwhelming effect when the Lord comes, and of course, comes in judgment. Comes in judgment. And then in the third place, it's why. Why is he coming to do this? And it's primarily the idolatry of Israel. Verse 5. Verse 5. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Now, Samaria was the, the capital of uh, the, the northern kingdom, uh, the, the ten tribes of Israel. That's where they had even put their, their golden uh, calf or whatever it is that they were primarily uh, worshipping there. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? And again, that was where the, the capital of the southern kingdom was, which is um, Judah. But even there he is saying that instead of him being the center of worship, even there they have established what is calling here the high place. And high place referred to a place that they would be 
exercising their worship in, especially idol worship. So he's basically saying that's the reason why he's coming to judge them. It is primarily because of idolatry that they were giving to other things the worship that is only due to God. And so he now finally, the fourth point, he threatens judgment. Verse 6 and verse 7. And there you begin to see the idolatry being mentioned. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country. And by the way, this happened in the days of Micah himself. This is before it happened. But he's threatening. God is speaking through him the word of the Lord that came to Micah and concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so he's speaking there. I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her curved images, those are the idols, shall be beaten to pieces. All her wedges shall be burnt with fire. And all her idols I will lay west. From the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute, she shall return. And the point there being that there was a lot of prostitution that was related to idol worship. And he is saying that the very monies that you were paying there is the money that is going to come from there now and go back to these nations. In this case, it's Assyria that was coming to destroy. The fee of a prostitute, they shall return. So that's the threat that God is giving to these people. And basically it amounts to this. I am a holy God. It's my very nature to be a moral being. But number two, I am the creator of the entire universe and I am your rescuer, your savior. I am your Lord. You are in a covenant relationship with me. But look at the way you have gone astray from me. I'm therefore coming now to exert discipline upon you. It's not out of malice. It's because of the way you have abandoned the true worship that you know you ought to be participating in. Well, what's supposed to be the response? And that's the main message that we are looking at today. What's supposed to be the response? Well, first of all, it's clearly one of sorrow. One of sorrow. And the way I want us to notice this is um, under three subheadings. The first is how Micah says he will weep because of this. Verse 8 and verse 9. Surely we should identify with him here. Verse 8 and verse 9. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourn like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and basically suggesting this is uh, a hard heart that will not repent. And more than that, it is a punishment that will be completely destructive. Her wound is incurable and has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. It's a response of sorrow. A genuine response of weeping. Imagine if we were all right now living in Gaza Strip. 
I think it's easier to illustrate it that way. But imagine that before Israel begins its attack, we receive the message that says the attack is imminent. It's coming. Think in terms of the general atmosphere that would be there in the whole place. Any planned parties, any planned discourse, any planned feasts, anything of a merry nature would immediately lose its place on the agenda. Because all of us would be thinking in terms of, okay, what should I pack out of all the things that are in my house in this one suitcase? Because I can't carry more than one suitcase. So all these things that have accumulated over the years that have made up so much of my life, the, the TVs, the, the hi-fi system, the, uh, the fridges and, and stoves and microwave stoves and, and the nice beds and display cabinets and, and all these things that I've put here. will be destroyed. So what should I put into this suitcase, put on my head, hold my child on one side, my wife on the other, and we begin to quickly escape? Obviously, it's a period where we have to console one another because our families will be in a state of weeping and wailing lamentations will be there, mourning will be there. And that's the way it is with Micah, because for him, this is real. The other people may think, ah, oh, he's a prophet, he's just threatening, you know, these are holier than thou, they just, they just want us to, to, to change the way we are living and so on. It can't happen, it won't happen. And especially because there are so many false prophets who are still prophesying joy and happiness and everything is going to be well. But for the prophet who knows that this is now a ticking time bomb, I will lament, I will wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will lament and mourn, because this judgment, as well as this sin, have reached the very gate of my people. What is interesting is the way in which he goes on to talk about the different places in the southern kingdom. The different places there and what's going to happen to them. So verse 10 down to verse 15 can be quite confusing if you don't know Hebrew, which is all of us in here including me. But thankfully, I was preparing using commentaries. So I've, I've been able to get behind the English into the Hebrew and to see how Micah is, is playing with words in order to, to, to drive home the point that terrible things are coming and they they don't respect who you are or what you are. So, for instance, first of all, when it says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, there, he's not playing with words there. All he's saying is, don't inform the enemies of God's people because they will start dancing and rejoicing. So don't weep in Gal. Don't tell, rather in Gath. Don't tell uh, Gath. Um, that's the, the, the Philistine territory. So don't do that, he says. However, he now begins to deal with the various towns, and he begins with uh, Bethlehem Afra, 
when he says, In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Now, the, the word Bethlehem um, primarily is, has the word dust in it, in the actual word. So, it is as though he is saying, this city of dust is going to be rolled in the dust. So, you can see the way in which he is beginning to play with the words. And then, notice verse 11, where he says, Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. Shaphir is a phrase in Hebrew that has the idea of beauty in it. So you can see the way in which he is now saying, your beauty is going to go in nakedness and shame. Literally, using the same words of those cities to turn them round and, as it were, slap them in the face. He says there, in, sorry, the inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. So Zanan, the, I've, I've got words here that says it's a play on the word for flocks of sheep, which normally in the morning they go out of their sheep pen to go and find pasture. Now he's saying, don't go out, which is exactly the opposite of what they are supposed to be doing by the very name that they have. And the reason is because if they go out, they will not escape. God is coming to judge them. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. So Beth Ezel is again Beth being a house or a place, Ezel being standing. So it's a kind of a place that stands with you. But now nobody is going to stand with you because you shall be taken away from this same standing place. So it's continuing to play with these words. Verse 12. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord at the gate of Jerusalem. Maroth, the word itself means bitter. And here he is saying they are waiting for something good. The people who are in bitterness, that's the name of their town, they're waiting for something good, but instead disaster is the one that is going to come upon them. Let's go on. Verse 13. Harness the steeds, that is the, the, the horses, to the chariots. Inhabitants of Lachish, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgression of Israel. So here, Lachish probably stands for a royal city where chariots are kept. The chariots that will now be brought in so that the soldiers can use them for warfare. And he's obviously saying there that, in fact, disaster is instead coming. Uh, the steeds will be harnessed, but instead be destroyed because of the transgression of Israel. We're making progress. Verse 14. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth, Gath, which by the way is the city or the little town that he himself came from. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth, Gath. And uh, 
the word Moresheth in Hebrew meaning possession. And he was saying there that you will instead um, be giving these parting gifts. Okay, so you, instead of being a possessing, they are now, you shall give them as parting gifts to Moresheth God. And then we have uh, Akzib. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the king of Israel. And uh, Akzib, the last part of it, that... Uh, let's remove the R. So, Gzib, that part, has to do with telling a lie. So, Akzib means telling the truth. It's the opposite of telling a lie. But instead of being a truthful people, the house of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing. So not lying will in fact be lying to the kings of Israel. Two more, and we are done. You can see that there's a lot of meaning here, which if you don't know Hebrew, uh, you wonder what on earth is talking about. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Maresha. Maresha. Maresha is simply the same word as Moresheth. Okay, so it's still the word possession. The word possession. So I will, you, what you will possess now, I will bring a conqueror to you. Inhabitants of Marisheth. So, the one who you will possess this time is one who's coming to conquer you. So, he's the one you will possess, and he will take you captive instead. And then, lastly, the glory of Israel shall come to you, Adullam. Now, Adullam is not necessarily a word itself. But it was David's fortified city. And again, the same thing that he's saying about Maresheth is what is going to happen to them. And it is the glory of the Lord being this glorious soldier or victor is the one who is coming. And he's coming to take you into exile. Is coming to finish you off. The glory of Israel shall come to Adulam. So basically what he has been doing here is, is playing with words so that it can register to the people around Judah that here we were giving very nice names to our cities but what God is coming to do is to turn that round and bring all that to shame upon us because we have failed him. And then lastly, verse 6, oh sorry, verse 16. He is basically saying weep because disaster is coming. Weep because disaster is coming. Make yourselves bold and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bold as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. Whatever your city might be, Go into a state of mourning and weeping because your children whom you have born and brought into this world, whom you love, you, you go to work every day to, to supply them with food and clothing and shelter. They will now all be dragged into exile and become slaves of another nation. So he says, I will weep. And he says, you also weep.
Don't allow your past glory by which your various nations, rather cities, were named. Don't allow that to blind you to the fact that now you deserve the judgment of God. Well, brethren, <clears throat> we need to apply this to ourselves. And I want to suggest to you that th there's nothing that shows more true godliness than when men and women are emotionally affected by sin and spiritual degradation when they are genuinely affected. And that's what we see here in Micah. He is affected by the sin and inevitably the judgment that is coming upon God's people because of their sin. I'm reminded of uh, this true spirituality in the words of our Lord when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, when he begins with the, the first blessed are the uh, poor in spirit. In other words, those who recognize their spiritual poverty. But the second one immediately is blessed are those who mourn because that's meant to be like a staircase to uh, being satisfied. So the very first step is that of recognizing spiritual poverty. The second is mourning. The third is being meek, being meek. In other words, instead of being stubborn, you are now malleable. God, do with me as you see fit. And then the fourth stage is that of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. But you can't miss the place where mourning is, weeping, wailing. This realization of spiritual poverty leading to that. And it's something that we, who claim to be God's people, should surely manifest. First of all, about our own selves. That there should be something of a depth of godliness that makes us sorrow over our own sins, our own sins, that drive us to the secret place of prayer where we, we, if we are not at least shedding tears, there's sufficient sorrow in our hearts before our God. But more than that, it is when God consequently holds back his blessing and in that sense judges us as his people. That surely should make us as individuals to, to be sorrowful, to come in, in genuine humiliation before the Lord, which is often what fasting is all about. It's, it's, you know, you've, it's implying you've, you've lost your appetite even for food, that you just want to come before God and lay prostrate before him. But I think we can also apply it, especially that we are going into a week of prayer and fasting, that we can apply to ourselves as a church by, by looking at areas where we, we are not glorifying God. We, we are failing the Lord. I think of, for instance, the, the lack of care for, for new believers and new members. That the, the Lord brings them to us, 
But we, we continue as if they are not there. We don't want to befriend them. We don't want to know them. We don't want to enter into their lives. We just continue in our own usual groups with no real care for them. And then think of the way in which we, we easily abandon meetings for the church. Easily. At the first excuse, we, 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 we don't want to be there. We want to be anywhere else. And yet, especially on the Lord's Day, where the Lord says, six days do all your work, the seventh is mine. It's mine. It's mine. Set it apart for worship. Think also of how few members are involved in church-based ministries. How few? Maybe 50 out of 400 going on to 450. And everybody else just somehow there sitting and enjoying the benefits of everybody else. Surely it ought to affect us because as a church it means that we are largely fat. We are not muscle. We are fat. Big in number but heavy. We are not doing the work that God has given us to do in his world. We are not. Think of our unfaithfulness with respect to tithes and pledges. We, we can pledge, especially during missions conferences. We pledge, we'll give so much and it's not somebody else pledging, it's us. We, we, are, we are writing on a piece of paper. We get the pen and we even write how much. We even put it in there. And then we don't fulfill. We look the other way. We're unfaithful, even to tithes. The Lord simply asks for one-tenth. That's all. That's one-tenth. So much. I mean, the other nine-tenth. One-tenth. But even the one-tenth, we keep to ourselves. Surely these things should, should send us to God in sorrow. In sorrow. When, when our young people are looking for spouses and, and they go to non-Christians, eh? to non-Christians, to, to the children of the devil, those who are worshipping the devil, those are the ones they go to and say, I want to marry you or you marry me. Surely, it should break our hearts. Where does all this come from? It's idolatry. It is. It's idolatry of material things. So those things are the ones that captivate our hearts and they've taken over the first place in our lives that ought to belong to God. And the other form of idolatry is recreation, especially sports, especially football. Once there's a match, God out of the window. Because that must be first. 
Now, again, there's nothing wrong with working, nothing wrong with recreation, there's nothing wrong with sport, but it's when it takes the first place. And you can see church life suffering, God's work suffering. Instead of God being glorified in Jerusalem, there is idol worshipping in Jerusalem itself. Micah says, don't let our enemies know, but inside, let's weep, let's wail, let's mourn, let's, let's give out laments. May that be true of us as a church, especially this week. This week. That God will, will humble us. That we will respond to these realities with genuine sorrow. He invites us to go to Calvary, to bring our grief to the cross. Thankfully, there is pardon there. There's cleansing there. All he asks for, as we were hearing a few minutes ago, is a broken heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. May that be true of us as we go to Calvary, as we ask for the Lord to cleanse us from sin, to send His Holy Spirit to revive us anew, may we do so with broken hearts. Amen.